We are continuing our study of the book of John, and one of the things I really hope that we see as we move through the the gospel of John is that Jesus is beautiful. John presents him as beautiful. Um, Just to kind of tell you where we've been and where we're going, this morning we're going to look at the first sign in the gospel of John. John uses that word, sign. Um, The other gospel writers say miracle, and he does it for a purpose. A sign and a miracle are, are the same, but what he is saying is there's a reason for every one of the signs he does. They point to the future. They point to our future glory, our future wedding, which we just sang about. And so this morning, we're going to have a really fun passage on a wedding. Weddings are fun. But to get there, I just want you to know, I mentioned this last week, John has been letting us know that Jesus, in the beginning, always existed and made all things. But he's also telling us Jesus has recreated all things, right? He's making all things new. And he started this seven-day march with John the Baptist. If you went back and looked at chapter 1, you'd find uh, the story where John is meeting or is answering the Pharisees is day one. And then the next day when he sees Jesus coming is day two. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Day three is when uh, he tells his disciples, Andrew and John the writer, follow him. There's the Lamb of God. They spend the night. Then day four would be Peter being chosen or called. Then the next day, day five, he calls uh, Philip and Nathaniel. And then in our passage on the third day, which would be two more days, that's how the Jewish count a little differently than we do. So on the third day or two days later, the seventh day, a wedding. It's a celebration. And so we are celebrating the fact that we are the bride of Christ, and he is calling us to himself. So let's look at this passage together. John chapter 2, verses 1. We'll stop at verse 11. <clears throat> on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you go to these great lengths to show us that you love us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning we would see this sign as not simply being for those in attendance at that wedding, but for us this morning that we would believe that you are the bridegroom. Great wedding. We would long to serve you and walk with you all the days of our life as we look forward to the great wedding in the future. Amen. 
it's such a great story. I don't know that I even need other illustrations, but I want to just give you a simple, silly illustration just to start with something that's been on my mind as I was studying this passage, and it comes from Superman 2, the 1980 version. So all, all the young people are like, I've never heard of that. Like, we're talking about Christopher Reeves and uh, back when, like, this was amazing technology. Like, how can you fly in the air on a movie screen? But I remember the time where Superman gives rid of his powers, goes to the, uh, the little uh, diner. Do you all remember the scene? And a man, a truck driver, starts getting mean to the waitress. And so Christopher Reeves, Clark Kent's going to take over. He's going to stay in and he gets beat up, like really bad. And you're watching him get beat up and you're like, no. And then fast forward later in the movie, he's got his powers back. And I don't know, this is Hollywood. Somehow he's at the exact same diner and that exact same man's there doing the exact same stuff. But now he's got his powers. And they have this interaction. And of course, the truck driver's thinking, who are you? I've already whipped you, right? And so he goes up to beat up Clark Kent and he throws a punch, all, you know, and Clark catches the fist and starts to squeeze it. And you hear the crunching of bones. And he's like, ah! And then he throws him down the bar. Yeah, justice. I don't know. That's just a great movie scene. <laughs> it may, that's, I want to say Jesus is invited to this wedding, and there's a temptation to be like, oh, there's you know, the son of Joseph and the disciples. But who has just walked into the wedding is the one that all weddings point to, right? And we're about to find that out in our story. And so it's an amazing juxtaposition of the ordinary becoming the extraordinary right in our midst. And that's what this sign points to. And I want us to realize that because Jesus is the bridegroom, if that's true, if we believe that reality, then our job or what we get to do is by faith live as one that's engaged to that groom. Now let me kind of explain some of that language. Um, in the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession, it asks the question, what is baptism? And the answer given, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost does signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace, and listen to the last line, and our engagement to the Lord, our engagement to be the Lord's, his possession. And so as we think about this passage and we think about the theology that's contained in it, we need to realize that we are betrothed as Christians to Jesus. Like that's the backdrop of this entire passage. Um, and as we think about that, we can start to embrace what really is taking place in our text. I was at a reception, Emily and I were at a reception of a couple who are married already, but um, it was a distant wedding, so they're now having a, a get-together locally, and we watched a video of sort of their engagement. And I was standing behind the couple, watching him kind of stroking her back, and, and this video is playing, and you just can't help in those moments but realize there's really, like, for them, two people in the room. You know? Like, we're all there. But a, a, newly, a young couple, especially an engaged couple, and they're married already, it's like we're the only two people. Right? And I just want you to have that mindset of affection toward Jesus as we look at this passage. So 
Let's now unpack the text a little bit and understand what's happening, but keep those things in mind. And we're going to see three things that we do to act, to be by faith engaged, okay? What does it look like to live as one that's engaged, right? You don't have to tell young women that are engaged how to behave. They kind of get it. They know what's coming. But I think the church, we lose sight of it. It seems so far away. And so in our passage, we see three things. One, we see that we can communicate with the groom with expectation, okay? I'll just say another word for that, pray. We can pray. Look at what Mary does. I'm going to set the, page, set the scene, and then we'll look at what Mary says. So we're on the third day. There's a wedding. Mary is there, although she's unnamed. And then Jesus is invited as well with his disciples. What this signifies, as we already know, is that Jesus has begun his ministry. Uh, he's already called the first five disciples. And now they're at this wedding. His, his status has somewhat changed. Even though he's still Mary's son, of course, and always will be, there's a change that's gone on. But he comes in, and, and they run out of wine. And, Jesus, and Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Right Now, before I get into the depths of that question, something to understand is these weddings are a little bit different than our weddings today. These were, from what I understand, like they can go on for seven days. These can be really long parties. Um, I talked to someone recently who's going to a wedding like that. Um, they're going to Florida, and the, and the couple are, uh, one side is Greek and one side is Indian from India, and the two cultures are coming together to have a four-day wedding with four days of celebration and party and excitement. Uh, the problem with that kind of a wedding is there's expectation. And what I understand is for the groom to have ran out of wine is not only extremely embarrassing, like we, we said we're going to throw this long party and we ran out, but that there are possible lawsuits that have been filed in the ancient world by the bride's family out of shame and embarrassment. Like, you embarrassed us. This party represents us. So we aren't sure why Mary is inserted into the discussion. Maybe it's a close relative. Some have even conjectured, could it be one of the other maybe half-brothers of Jesus, that may be a stretch. But it's a, it's a small community. They're not, it's only eight miles from Nazareth, and they obviously know the people they're invited, and they're extremely embarrassed. At least Mary is, and so would the groom's family be. And so, back to the question, or to the statement. They have no wine. Um, what is she doing right there? I've really wrestled with this, because the, the text doesn't tell you. Does she think, I think Jesus can turn water into wine. A lot of people like to say that. I'm sure he did miracles, right? But John tells us this is the very first sign. Now, that doesn't mean he couldn't have ever done anything miraculous. We all we know his conception was miraculous in birth. But I would argue, and I think many would agree, that it's presumptuous to assume she just thinks he'll do this because he's done tricks before, magic kind of thing before. His own father, Joseph, has died. And he didn't raise him from the dead. I don't think Jesus had performed miracles on the other extreme, though, is that she's simply responding to Jesus as her son, her eldest son, probably who prior to becoming the rabbi and having followers had been the carpenter, and maybe she just needed his resources and help. That might be too far the other direction. So here's where I'm settling. You all can pray and read and study and settle it yourself. I think Mary often has been taken too seriously 
Like, she's never sinned. That's what the Catholic, I mean, you know, there's these views out there. I won't state who has them. On the other extreme, I've, I read some of the reformers who want to treat her like she has almost zero faith. I think Mary is our model of faith in the passage. I think Mary knows who Jesus is, and I think Mary has made the transition and sees Jesus come in and is thinking, what a perfect opportunity for a miracle. Like, what if she has that kind of faith? Like, they're out of wine. This is the groom of the church. I'm going to just drop this in his lap with pure faith that I know he could do this. And she says, they have no wine. Are we willing to pray like that? Do we, do we have that kind of faith? By the way, she says, do whatever he tells you, right? She kind of ignores his comments. So I think she knows. He can do this. Now, I do need to touch on his response. Uh, the word, it says woman, comma. The NIV says dear woman. In our culture, that sounds very rude. Uh, he uses that same word from the cross, in John 19, it's not so much, I don't think John's telling us that he's being rude. I think he's, John's telling us he's not acting right now as her son. See, he's, he's acting as the Messiah, woman. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And she responds by saying, do whatever he tells you. Um, that's prayer. Do we pray like Mary? Do we have expectations like Mary? If we are to live by faith as though we are engaged to be the Lord's, do we pray these kind of prayers? Um, many of you have heard of like the model of prayer acts, A-C-T-S. I think it's a good model to keep in your mind. I think often we find ourselves doing supplication, but the A would be adoration. Do we adore Jesus in our prayer? Do we adore the Father, the Spirit? Confession, right? We do that every Sunday. Are we prayerfully confessing our sins? Thanksgiving, I mean, that is huge. How many scripture verses say, be thankful, pray with thanksgiving? Are we thankful before meals, when any blessing comes, just for the fact that we're alive? But then that last letter, S, supplication, which is what Mary seems to be doing here, is still so powerful because it's kingdom-minded. She's not trying to remove a little bit of embarrassment for the groom or a lot. I think she actually, by faith, believes that Jesus can use this time to sh spread the kingdom and send the kingdom forward? Are we praying kingdom prayers? Are we thinking those ways? So that's point number one. We, act with, we ask with, or we live with expectancy, right? We pray. But also, by faith, we begin to operate as though it's already finished. Uh, not only uh, does Mary ask this question and then tells the servants, do whatever he tells you, but then Jesus gives some commandments. He says in verse 6 uh, or verse 7, fill the jars with water. And the servants go and fill the water. Now, when you read your Bible, let's fill in the gaps here. Okay, it's six stone jars, each holding 30 gallons. And Jesus tells them to go and get water, presumably from the town well, and come back and fill each one until it's filled and they did so until it was filled to the brim. That's a lot of work. Now, keep in mind that probably the wedding was kind of getting really dull. Like, they didn't say they're running low on wine. They're out. People are starting to, you know, you know what's going to happen? Uh, you just kind of wonder, what was this like? How many people even knew that he was 
trying to do anything. We aren't told. But what I started meditating on was the fact that when do you think in this story it became wine? I've always assumed in the jars, the last pour was done, and all of a sudden you would smell the aroma of wine. But what if? What if uh, the servants are kind of like whispering to each other, now we're supposed to take some to the master of the feast. So there's a person over here whom we're going to take a cup of water and we're going to walk, you know, like how slowly can I walk? Like wondering, when is this going to happen? What's going to happen? Is there something special? And, and I just was meditating on that as I read through this, that that's how I perceive, again, there's room for all of your own prayerful perception. Don't go against scripture. I think it wasn't wine until he gets to the master of the feast. And now at that point, it's all wine, okay? But I want you to imagine what you would be like if you had done that. You fill the water and you're walking closer and closer and you're handing it over and he takes it from you. And you're going like, what's going to happen? This is the most embarrassing thing ever. You know how much faith that would take? Like, think about, like, that would take a tremendous amount. I, every step, I'd be like, I could run right now. You know, no one would even know. I could, I could pass it on. I've gone three steps. Maybe the next servant would go three steps. I could come up with all these ways. And yet, he walks up to the master of the feast, hands it to him, and then when you read how it comes across, it's amazing because it's almost comical. Everyone, here's the master. Master takes it. Everyone's watching. He sips it, right? And then here's what he says in verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Okay. First of all, that's a scam. Like, that's not good. It's like, let me tell you what we all kind of know to be true. But what he does when he drinks, he says, but you have kept the good wine until now. And all of a sudden, you realize Jesus has performed this miracle. I mean, wow. Do you operate that way, as though Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do in our lives and in our midst? We know about Peter, right, getting out of the boat. I've always just, I love to just think, what would that be like to step out? I mean, do we have that kind of faith? Recently, we were at New Life Ranch, our family, um, and we did the zip line. I don't think I'd ever done a zip line and it's so obvious. All of you have done zip lines, right? We all get it. You get up there, and it's scary. But when you're up there, and you're on the harness, I actually, I'm really thinking, like, I, I'm going to die. I read the newspaper. I know that one, one out of ten, you know, the numbers that happen. And you're just sitting there, and what do you do? You just start telling yourself things like, I'm trusting these people. Right? They all have their check. Check. You know, they have this check. They turn that thing. That thing gets clicked. There's four of them. And at the end of the day, all you can do when you leap off is you just do it completely by faith. Like you're just trusting in all these other people that have built this thing. And then you don't die, and it ends up being a really fun ride. That's what I think faith looks like. Jesus has commanded us, because of the fact that he's our groom, that we can trust him for what he's going to do in his kingdom and we're simply to begin to act by faith in our lives and do that and trust him. But it, the key to this discussion is it's going to be very, very difficult. Like you're going to question yourself the whole time. And I'm afraid that a lot of us in our Christian faith, we really want proof on the front end, 
right? We really need to know it's going to happen before we take our, our step of faith. I really need to know this person will receive this conversation well before I venture by faith into it, whether it's to share the gospel, whether it's to discuss anything of discipleship, or maybe it's, um, maybe it's repenting in your marriage where I'm like, I need to know that when I sit down with my spouse and I share that I'm sorry, I, I sort of need to know on the front end that they're going to receive it. But you don't. And so the Christian life is not going to ever, this side of heaven, give you all those warm, fuzzy answers. You're stepping out by faith all the time, every day, right? But Jesus promises to be with you, and he promises to walk with you. When you follow these steps, he's going to lead you down the right paths of righteousness and improve our marriages and improve our relationships. You know, this is very similar to Schaefer when he talks about the two chairs, the supernatural chair and the natural chair. We really have grown to live in the natural chair. That is, we want everything by sight. We want to know ahead of time it's going to work. We want it all mapped out, and that's not possible. And you've heard this a million times, or you've heard live by faith a million times. But you and I all, if we're very honest, know that this very morning, we have been struggling to live by faith, to trust the realities of Jesus and his promises, even in this very day. And so we, we get up um, and we live out of the reality of the cross. I've heard someone recently say, and I kind of wince when I hear it, fake it till you make it. Have you heard that? Please don't hear what I'm not saying. It's a really cheesy, silly way to say it. But I want to say there are times when you act joyful even if you don't feel it. But not because you're faking it. This is the difference. But because it's true. Right? It's by faith you're acting. In fact, the fact that I'm not feeling it is the problem. But in our culture, we have this kind of authenticity thing. Well, I'm not going to ever say thank you if I don't feel thankful. You know? I'm not going to smile at somebody if I'm kind of a little bit angry or whatever. And so I, I think what we need to begin to do is live based on the promises of Scripture, but it's going to feel difficult. Right? So... We operate as though it's already complete. And then finally, we can celebrate now. There's a celebration in our passage. Um, what makes this wedding so amazing and so beautiful is that Jesus shows up and affirms the celebration. In fact, what I love is he really seems to want to come and be a guest. Like he really does come to this wedding and there's that sense when Mary comes to him and says, you know, are you going to help? that there's a part of him that wants to just come and be a part of the party and celebrate and rejoice. Are we celebrating? Are we rejoicing in our lives? Are we, are we enjoying life? Christians should be filled with joy. But how, right? Well, we have this wedding. We have this situation. And we have the ending of the story. And I want to read that again and, and sort of unpack it. Everyone serves the good wine first. We heard that. And when the people have drunk freely, the poor wine. Pause. If you're the groom, it, it would have to feel a little bit like you've just been completely exposed. Right? Like, he, like I'm being exposed right before the guests. Whoever can hear this conversation would, would know. And let me explain what that means. What, the wine in, in this time period, it's not like there would be different 
types of wine as much as different dilutions of wine. Right, so you would start with the wine being a little bit more pure, and then as the night wore on, you'd, they'd start adding more water, people are drinking more, and pretty soon it gets very, very diluted. Right? Well, I'm not sure what this bridegroom did, but apparently they didn't dilute it enough because it was gone. You almost wonder if this, this bridegroom just said, look, I'm not doing that. We're just going to put the wine out, and when it's gone, it's gone. But here's what's so amazing. If this bridegroom and this master of the ceremony was following that tactic, they had drank the good wine already that, that day, that week, whatever, right? And when Jesus' wine comes in and they drink it, he is so, like, amazed at how much better it is. Does that? Jesus brought not just, he didn't just solve the problem. He didn't just say, look, I'm going to fix this. He gave the best wine. Who likes, no one has to raise their hand, but if you like wine, like I have friends in this room who are connoisseurs of wine, and I just, I, I thought about, I, I played with the idea we should get like the greatest wine for communion, but we didn't. You know. But I just want you to know Jesus loves you and celebrates with you. And he brought a celebration in to this community. But it came at a cost. Right? When he says this, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I, I think there's two meanings there. The first meaning that I really picture is, a, is um, when we were getting married, we, I remember a wedding, one of the weddings I remember the most in my entire life attending was the one we went to right before our wedding. Because what are you doing? When you go to the wedding before your wedding, you're comparing everything. Oh, they played that song coming down the aisle. Oh, they all came in from the side. We'll have our groomsmen go down from the back. Like, oh, you know, these flowers. We'll do those flowers. You're just, right. I envision Jesus coming to this wedding thinking about his wedding, thinking about you, thinking about glory, right? And, and you just imagine that he, this is, we get so caught up in the humanity. Jesus made marriage. Jesus made weddings. Not because, not because they are an end in and of themselves, but because, as Ephesians 5 tells us, they point to our marriage with him. That one day, someday, we are going to walk down that aisle, and Jesus is the groom, and his eyes are twinkling with tears as we come down that aisle. And that's what he's imagining. And so the wine is a celebration of that reality. But there's a separate thing that the wine also represents, and that's the cost for us to be that bride. Right? And I think even as I said that and I mentioned that to you, what do you make of being the bride coming down that aisle wearing white? What do you make of that? If we're honest, I think we think both, yay, that's exciting and beautiful, but I don't feel white. I'm not sure I should buy the white dress. You know? And then you think of Hosea, who was called to marry Gomer in the Old Testament, who was a prostitute. And you have the picture that Jesus comes to us not because we are worthy. He's not looking in the audience going, who can wear the white dress? Because none of you can wear the white dress. 
I can't wear the white dress. None of us can. Right? If in heaven there was a white dress salesman, they're going to go broke. So the wine represents the blood of Christ spilling for us, right? Because the cost of the cross, his death and his resurrection poured over us creates this, the most strange thing you can ever read. We are crazy as Christians. Our God dies on a cross and we rejoice. Right? And that's how Paul talks about it. In Colossians 2.20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? So he's talking about death as a positive thing. Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died, Jesus, for all, and therefore we all have died. And in Romans 6, for one who has died has been set free. And what you find in Romans, I'll read the next verse, 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So when you come to this picture of the wedding, and you come to this picture of what Jesus is saying to his mother and to this, this group of attendees at this wedding is this. You are the bride because I have died for you. And the most beautiful thing in the world is that as we take our communion, as we take the wine, what we are celebrating is that the Holy Spirit has applied the blood of Christ to you. And you are clean. Not only do I wish we would have had wine that was like amazing in the cups, I wish I had a wedding dress for every one of you. How <laughs> Come on. We need a little levity right now. We don't know what to do, especially men, with being a, a bride. But no, there's nothing better than the thought that we have a bridegroom who has come after us and has made us acceptable and that there's nothing you can do. If you are in Christ and you have that gown that he has given you, your wedding is set. Your wedding date is set. And now by faith, I love how this ends. This, verse 11, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana, and his disciples believed in him. Wait a minute. Last week we were talking about how they were all saying, you're the Messiah. You're, they already believed. But yes, but they believed. Like They realized this is the groom. Is that what moves you in your Christian life? By faith, you are clean you are a bride and your groom is looking at you and that is what our life is like until we see him face to face. Is that your hope? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the wine representing both the flourishing wedding we long to have with you but also the lengths you have gone to to clothe us in righteousness. We are all wearing the white garment, no matter what we've done. Lord, everyone in this room has fallen short of the glory of God. And those of us in this room that are Christians, that have received you, we're not Christians because we did something better, but only because we've believed and receive you in your mercy. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not been clothed with your righteousness, that they would realize now it's because they're trying to earn their own. 
and we can't do that. And Lord, if there are people who are Christians here but have become stagnant, help us to understand that it's because we're so often going back trying to make ourselves clean and we cannot. Only you make us clean. You tell us in Isaiah that you will wash us and make us, though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, like a wedding dress. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would believe this and that would drive us in our faith as we are engaged to be yours. Amen.